Hello, I'm Ian. Welcome to Creator Coco. This podcast helps you become a better creator by helping you learn from what other creators have already figured out. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us a tweet at Creator Coco. That's Creator and then C O C O A. In this episode, we talk about the history of venture capital so we can understand better how our world works. I hope you learned something that helps you become a better creator. This episode was brought to you by Fictionista. Fictionista is an app for writing where new sentences, storylines and characters can be magically suggested to you as you write using the power of artificial intelligence. With Fictionista, it's easier than ever to create new worlds and write that story you've always wanted to write. No more writer's block. You can download Fictionista from the App Store or the Play Store or go to fictionista.club. That's fictionista.club. Okay, so um today I wanted us to talk about the history of venture capital. I thought this was an interesting topic because I don't think it's a topic that most of us understand. Uh we don't really understand how powerful this invisible force called venture capital is and how much it affects us every single day. Uh we also don't understand how, you know, the money part of this works. We know that there are people called VCs and they usually give money to startups. but that relationship is not usually explored and especially the history how did people start um giving out this thing called venture capital and so i thought it was an interesting topic because it gives you a lot of insight into how money works and it can also explain a, lo- a lot of the things that we see in our society right now so one of the one of the reasons i thought this was important is because venture capital has accelerated our technological advancement If you look at a lot of the technologies that we enjoy today all the way from personal computers going into operating systems things like Microsoft, Apple, um and companies like that even you know all the apps that we use today if you use WhatsApp, if you use Facebook um all of that has been enabled by this tool called venture capital. So it has had a huge impact on our day-to-day lives and all the products we use every day are in some way related to uh, venture capital. all the technology that we use every day the other thing is uh, venture capital is sub- subsidizing our lives through startup competition this is actually an interesting thing which i recently realized which is that all the, every, every time whenever you're using an app and you're using it for free the reason why you're able to use it for free is because there is a venture capitalist somewhere who's paying for those developers and the people working on that team to keep working on that product so that you can have that product for free there's an investor somewhere paying for that product so that you can use it for free for example if you're using bolt or bolt food or uber uh, uber eats and you're ordering food and you see that you have a huge discount you have a 50% discount uh the person who ends up paying for that 50% is usually a venture capitalist indirectly uh they are subsid they're, they're literally paying for for us to have cheaper meals they're paying for us to have cheaper uh rides across the city and and they're paying for us to use these apps for free in the hopes that in the future they can have enough customers that they'll be able to uh basically monetize and and make money but a lot of us are living subsidized lives uh because of uh some of these VCs 
also venture capitalists are the people who have created this new class of billionaires if you look at the bill gates if you look at the uh, mark zuckerbergs and you know even the the google founders all of them were created because of vcs and these even elon musks of the society and these are the most powerful people in our society and so this history of understanding history in general is also just an interesting thing to 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 understand and it's fun at least for me and so i thought it was important for us to learn about uh, venture capital for some of these reasons that we're actually getting a lot of things are being paid for us uh, by by these vcs and so uh, that's why i think this is important and um, now let's go back uh, in history so we can understand how we got here to this situation we're in right now so let's say you're in the past and and we don't have any idea about companies we don't have any idea of venture capitalists so if you wanted to start a business what would you do in order to get the capital that you need to 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 push your business forward or to buy the whatever the the, the things that you need for most of capitalism's history entrepreneurial ventures were financed through credit instead of equity this means that if i wanted to start my business it uh, for mo for most of history, I would have had to get a loan from someone. I would have had to go and tell them instead of, you know, I'm not selling you a part of my company. I'm going to ask you for a loan. And there are several reasons why it was preferable for financiers to lend money to companies rather than to buy shares in them. So the, the, so the people who had the monies, the, the rich people, the rich class, the wealthy, they, they much preferred to lend businesses money than to actually buy stock in these businesses and some of the reasons why one of the reasons would be there was lack of information so how could they make sure the money was put to work in the company and not embezzled by the ceo or their employees without a proper information system it was difficult to determine how much profit a company made let alone if it made a profit at all uh, in the in the in the past, it was difficult to figure out exactly what how a company was doing because even things like um, you know cash registers and a proper accounting was not you know widely spread. It, this infrastructure wasn't uh, you know uh, it wasn't established, and so the easier way to secure a return on one's investment was to lend money and submit a claim for reimbursement at the agreed date, whatever the situation of the company. So you say, I'm going to lend you money if it's $100,000, for example, and I'm going to get it back on, at a certain date, at a certain interest rate, and I don't care how your company is doing, just return the money to me. And so that's, that's how the companies raised money for the longest time. The other reason why uh, it was preferable for companies to, uh, for, for companies to raise money through debt uh, and not equity was because of something called unlimited liability. So before limited liability became common practice, if you owned a company's shares as an investor, you are potentially liable for all the money that company owed to other stakeholders. So it was very risky to take an equity stake in a company. You had to know the entrepreneur, live nearby to keep an eye on them and make sure they didn't make any decisions that could result in somebody taking your wealth away from you. So if you invested in this company, if, for example, you convinced me to invest in your company and buy some shares in your stock and then um, and buy some shares in your company and then your company ended up failing, 
uh, what would happen is I would also be liable to any creditors that you have or people who require money from you. I, they, they would be able to come personally to me and ask me to pay back the money that you owe them. And so it was a huge risk for you to actually invest in someone's company because first of all, you don't know how you, you don't have transparency into the company. And second, we had unlimited liability where if the company fails, you're also personally liable um, for that failure. So an innovation came along in history and it was called limited liability. So should your company run into trouble, your personal assets will be secure. This is because a limited company is treated as a separate legal entity, a legal person in its own right. Uh, this means that if you asked me to invest in your company and the company didn't end up working, the company and my personal assets would be considered separate and the assets that the creditors, if other people, if, you, if the company owed people money, the assets that would need to be sold would be the assets that belong to the company. In 1811, New York State brought in a general limited liability law for manufacturing companies. Its popularity and the flight of capital to the states with limited liability from those without led most American states to follow suit. In 1854, Britain, which was the world's leading economic power, also switched to uh, allowing companies to use limited liability. Um, but uh, after this limited liability was made to was allowed to become legal, it still took a bit of time for people to, 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 to accept this idea. And they had to learn to invest in equity. So even in the presence of reliable information systems and limited liability, buying stocks in new ventures, it long remained a privilege for the wealthy. And this is even something that happens today. Uh, for the most part, it's only people who have a lot of capital, you have a lot of cash, and you're willing to invest that cash in. Uh, in, in risky startups. So it was difficult for entrepreneurs to advertise their new ventures on the marketplace, and the public preferred to own shares in existing listed companies anyways. So let's say you started a company and you're, you're like, oh, I've started my company, How do and I, and I want to sell my shares, how do I do it? it was, so it was difficult for, for, for entrepreneurs to be like, now I want to put my shares publicly, and all, all of that stuff was very difficult. And so, and so this is not a format that immediately took off uh, because of these couple of barriers. Um, there was also another issue, or, or not another issue, but uh, when it comes to now investing, so let's say you convince your investor that um, during, during this time, this is now before venture capital, if you convince someone to invest, they were going to look at two things. So they're going to look at whether you have tangible assets. So these are things that they can... They can come to like does your company own assets like tangible the physical things that they can take and sell or are you are you earning money a uh, recurring revenue so both debt and equity had always been carefully based on the balance sheets and the capital assets of the corporations being financed and at that time railroads were important clients because if a railroad company goes bankrupt you can take the trains and the metal and the railings and whatever, and you can start to sell that stuff so that you can try and recoup some of the money that you lost as an investor. Because you can't go after the person who started the company, you, you go after the assets of the company. So that was one way to make investors feel safe. If a, if a company had a lot of assets, a lot of tangible assets, 
it's a it's better for the investor because they know that if you go under they can actually sell some of those assets so there are also other investment opportunities extended to two categories of ventures so the the valuable tangible assets and also those that operated retail businesses because there were other types of prof profitable businesses that didn't have tangible assets um but uh but they had recurring revenue so so apart from looking at tangible assets they, they shifted now a bit they were like the companies which are making a lot of money but they don't have tangible assets so we are also going to look at how much revenue these companies are making and and those were retail businesses a lot of the time because you just buy stock and then you sell it to your customers and so you didn't have a lot of assets yourself but you are also you're still making a lot of money so so these are two types of companies which were uh now after after we have limited liability these are two types of companies that started taking off companies with tangible assets and companies with earning power yes um and actually the history of companies itself is much longer than that and it's it goes way way back uh into the dutch and the british uh, probably in the 1400s i think uh, so it goes uh, it goes a while back when they started this whole idea of having companies okay so just to summarize where, where we currently are we have looked at um, what happened before before equity how you'd get a company before uh, why people were investing in um in, in equity of uh, sorry in why people are giving out loans instead of doing equity we've looked at unlimited liability we've looked at what limited liability is and then we have looked at um, tangible assets versus earning power so these are the two kinds of companies which are being invested in but then a new kind of company uh, came into the into the foreground and these are called technology products so the problem is that technology focused ventures didn't fall into either of those categories. They couldn't borrow from banks because their business model was unknown. So sometimes when you're starting a technology company, you're not very sure how you're going to make money yet, or you want to delay making money until the future. And then they still had everything to prove whether this was going to work or not. And they couldn't raise capital from the public because it was difficult to value this kind of technology. So it's difficult to tell whether or not this technology, how valuable is it? And these people didn't really know how to value this, uh, this kind of a product. So this gap led to emergence of private equity. Private equity is basically the savings of rich people. So rich people are the core of venture capital or of private equity. So uh, there's, there's a bunch of rich people. We don't know who they are. They're out there and they have a lot of money that's burning a hole in their pocket. Um, they, they don't want to leave this money inside banks or because of inflation and things like that. So you want to have at least some of this money out there taking risks in order to uh, grow even further. So because it was so risky, technology ventures were forced to rely on these wealthy individuals. Now, during World War II, now we're still, we're still in the past, we still haven't come to the modern, uh, modern, uh, modern times yet. So, so during World War II, uh, this is uh, in the 1930s, 1940s, the U.S. military needed top-notch researchers, but the best researchers preferred to join academia than enroll in the military. So if you're a scientist or if you're, a, you're just a nerd and you're interested in you know, doing research and uncovering knowledge, you wouldn't want to join the military. But at the same time, the U.S. was competing with a lot of you know, German scientists who, again, who had a lot of Nobel Prizes. And so Germany was kicking their butt. And a lot of U.S. soldiers were dying because um, U.S. had inferior research, inferior technology. So instead of recruiting researchers and forcing them to renounce their academic careers, 
why not leave them where they are and provide them with the resources necessary to conduct their research on matters that were of interest to the US military. So they thought instead of, you know, uh, throwing these people into the military, let's actually leave them where they are in the universities and then let us fund those universities so that they can actually do research in those universities and uh, create technology for us to help us win the war and to help us advance our economy. So a lot of money was subsequently poured into elite universities. And these are universities like MIT, Stanford, Harvard, all the Ivy League universities that uh, yeah, we usually know. And there's also now a question of entrepreneurship versus universities. So in many ways, we're still trapped in an idea inspired by that specific period where, where, where a lot of progress came from universities, a lot of new technology came from universities. Uh, and we still believe that our prospect, our, our prosperity depends primarily on universities when in fact, in the current period, it has changed and it depends more on entrepreneurship. So in the past, universities used to pump out a lot of good knowledge, a lot of research, but that has shifted. And in the last 20, 30, 40 years, uh, entrepreneurs are the ones who are leading the way and not necessarily, not, not necessarily universities when it comes to uh, progressing us in terms of technology. And now we finally reach the creation of venture capital. Okay, so now let's talk about the emergence of venture capital. So I've talked about some of the history, like, you know, in the past, how it was, but now let's talk about how it is now. So the word venture is from the full word, which is adventure, which is the idea that this is risky capital and you're taking, you know, you're going on an adventure with it or something like that. But the full name would have been adventure, but someone decided to call it venture capital. Um, so venture capital only emerged as an asset class in the 1970s when it came to financing a new industry, personal computing. As personal computing reached consumer markets for the first time, notably with the launch of the Apple II, venture capital grew tenfold in the following years. So things like transistors and all these new kinds of technologies, uh, you know, um, circuit boards and, and things like that started becoming more popular. And as, as, as people started use, trying to figure out how to use computers and they saw the, 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 the benefits of computers and this kind of technology, uh, venture capitalists figured that they could make a lot of money and they started investing a lot. And then fortunately in the 1990s, the tech bubble um, provided venture capitalists with a new larger platform on which they could grow up and dance. So the internet, so they, they, after, after personal computing, another wave of technology was born because of personal computing called the internet. And now this led to that famous tech bubble, which ended up popping, but still a lot of investors, uh, you know, had faith that technology is going to be the future and they kept investing in technology. And here is where we are now um, because of venture capital still kept pouring into that, that kind of technology. So some early successes, uh, there's a famous story about a company called Fairchild Semiconductor. Uh, this is just some history. Uh, there's a guy called Don Valentine, but there are there are there are huge companies which are established, which uh, usually invest. So, so one of them is called Sequoia. Another one is called Kleiner Parkins, and there's a few others. Um, in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, uh, they brought successful exits for VC investors and created some of today's biggest companies, Apple. Genentech, FedEx, Microsoft, and Electronic Arts. So a lot of these early companies exist now because of venture capital in the in the in the 70s and the 80s.
another form of of venture capital uh, that has sprung up in 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 in, in recent times is the idea of accelerators. So in 2005, Paul Graham launched Y Combinator. And then there's a few others that launched uh, in the UK. For example, there's one called Seedcamp, which was followed by a slew of accelerators, including Techstars, Seedstart, 500 Startups, and others. So this is the idea that you would put together uh, early-stage early startups, and then they would come together, they would be able to network, they would be able to benefit from, you know, uh, all these network effects and they would be able to learn from each other. You're concentrating all this experience so that instead of learning all these things over five years, you can learn them in, you know, less than that. You can learn them in six months. And examples of companies which um, benefited from uh, accelerators, Airbnb, Dropbox, Stripe, Reddit, Twitch, Coinbase, these are huge companies today. Uh, they have all affected our lives and you probably use uh, maybe a couple of these or you've, you've tried them out, I don't know. And even here in Nairobi, here in Kenya, there's uh, accelerators which uh, became really popular. There's iHub, Nylab, iLab, and even now there's probably a few others that I'm not mentioning or that I don't even know about. But this idea is very popular and it's a way for startups to get funding. Uh, the other idea is uh, angel investors and also micro VCs. So the, the, as the cost of starting a company had fallen, Opportunities were everywhere, yet many VCs still refuse to take a chance on such early-stage companies. Uh, the reason why you don't want to take a chance on early-stage companies is because it's still very risky, and so a lot of these these VCs they would wait for a company for they would wait for a company to mature a bit to see whether it succeeds, and then that's when they would jump in and invest. Uh, but someone still needs to help the early-stage companies, so that's where the micro VC was born to fill the gap. So just to show you how much money is involved in this world of VC, these ones called micro VCs. So micro VC farms are small farms whose fund size is between 25 million to $100 million. So if you're asking for less than $25 million, they're considering you as, you know, are you, are you even worth our time? Like, <laughs> uh, so, so these people are, VCs actually want to invest hundreds of millions of dollars. That's what they're usually looking to invest because there's a lot of money out there. So these um, angels and micro VCs, they invest small amounts of capital in large pools of companies that are, are at the pre-seed and seed stage. So they spread out this money across many risky companies and it's a high risk and high reward strategy, hoping that some of them end up succeeding. And uh, this whole idea of, you know, venture capital, micro investing, uh, micro VCs and angels and even accelerators has led to an idea of the unicorns. So with sky high valuations, the world of VC needed a new term to define a startup with a valuation of a one billion. And that's, that's the unicorn because they are rare and magical. But how rare are they? So as of March of this year, there are now over a thousand unicorns. There are now over a thousand companies which are worth one billion. But just because this valuation is high, just because a company is worth that much, it doesn't mean that it's going to be successful. A lot of these startups are also um, victims of speculation. So investors feel like it's going to be successful and then they can create a bubble and start over investing in a company. So despite being classified uh, as a unicorn, they can still be inherently risky. So you can think about companies like um, Theranos, even FTX recently collapsed. Uh, 
uh, even something like WeWork and companies like that. So even if you're a unicorn, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. You need a, a product that people love and people can, you know, they can they pay you. And then now let's talk about some numbers. I just want to show you how big some of this, these investments can be. So um, so in the last uh, in, last year, basically in 2021, there were 181 VC, 181 VC backed IPOs that represented 512 billion. So these IPOs, they all had a value collectively of 614 billion, but the investors had only invested 60 billion. So from 60 billion, they they got back 614 billion in one year. So you can see how much money these investors are making, and you can see why 25 million dollars is not a lot of money to them. Um, and then VC-backed IPOs accounted for nearly 20% of total US IPO count last year. And as much as I've spoken a lot about the US, venture capital is around the world. It's also in Asia, in Europe, and even here in Africa. And uh, yeah, that's some of the history of venture capital. So, um, <clears throat> any questions? Anyone?